Welcome everyone to another of Shared Ireland's podcast. Today we'll be continuing our a conversation with series with an exceptional guest. Today we are sitting on the stage at the new theatre in Temple Bar, Dublin. Our guest is from the travelling community. He's an actor, both stage and screen. He's a screenwriter, documentary filmmaker, playwright and human rights activist. He'll probably be best known for his role as Patrick Ward in the Irish crime drama series Love Hate and for Cardboard Gangsters in which he won Best Actor at the 2018 Irish Film and Television Awards. Shared Ireland is privileged to welcome along Mr John Connors. Welcome John. Thanks for having me. That was a great introduction. You've done your research. <laughs> that's, that's probably the longest introduction I've ever had to do, John. And you're still under the age of 30. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So imagine what's going to happen if we speak again in five years. Well, hopefully we have a long way to go, but I'm about 43 in settled years. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. John, tell me this. You've kindly taken time out today from your rehearsals to yeah. talk to us. We really appreciate that. Um, I believe you'll be taking your play to the Lyric Theatre in Belfast soon. Could you tell us a little bit more about it and the dates and how people can book tickets if they want? Yeah, so it's in the Lyric Theatre between the 23rd to the 26th of October. Okay. Uh, we might even be doing another night there. It's part of the Belfast International Theatre Festival. And um, the play is called Ireland's Call. And it, it premiered in the Fringe Festival last year. When I sort of really didn't really know what I was doing with it, it was kind of an experiment. I got no rehearsals really because we were still writing it up until the day before. So the play is about, um, it's about a group of lads. It starts off about a group of lads who their dream is to go to Abita. Ever since they saw the film Kevin and Perry Go Large. Every young boy's yeah. dream, eh? But they're near they're getting older now and they're saying this dream is never gonna happen, so they decide to go to a beat and madness ensues. This this reminds me of a version of the Hardy books. Well, <laughs> it's a little darker than that. Um, so so we see a lot of fun and a lot of games between the lads, a lot of the kind of highs of drugs and the glory and the the sort of beauty and drugs which the kids are getting attracted to. Okay. And then we see the downfall of it, which is death and destruction. So there's a message here. Oh absolutely. And then it's it's very political so the character of James who I tell the story to would be very political and his family history would be ravaged with tragedy his father and mother were both heroin addicts um, and his grandfather would have went to an industrial school and there's a generational impact of trauma and I think we have this hugely on the island of Ireland uh, this thing of trauma that we don't deal with and we deal with through substances and through alcohol it's why we glorify alcohol um, it's why it's unfortunately become a part of our culture and that goes back to colonialism that's the way we were painted and we started believing propaganda uh, and now we use that in, in a way to to null the pain so we see a lot of that stuff and a lot of criticisms of the, the Irish free state since it was formed and everything that I think that went wrong and how things could have been different so it's really political but it's, but it's really political while maintaining a really strong story because I believe in storytelling I believe in the old Shanachie style of, of storytelling um, and my people the travellers are great storytellers so I'm telling it in a very real shanaki way um, very unusual for a play it's actually kind of anti-theatre it's not really theatre What's the name of it again, Joe? Ireland's Call. And when, just remind us of the dates again in the Lyric Theatre in Belfast? The 23rd to the 26th of October. Okay, great. So before we get into the nuts and bolts of things, I suppose there's one burning question that I want to ask you. Mm. How's Fran and Nidge keeping these days? <laughs> well, Nidge is fucking dead. <laughs> <laughs> and Fran's locked up somewhere. <laughs> so it'd be fair to say that you have yeah, no communication. There's no fucking communication. <laughs> no, but the, the, the actual lads, the actors I stay in touch with, them, particularly Tom Von Lawler, who plays Nidge, yeah. um, I consider 
him a good friend and uh, uh, probably one of the most decent human beings I've ever encountered in my life and one of the best actors uh, and, and a consummate uh, professional. So I stay in touch with some of them and uh, we're all kind of going about doing our own things in our own lives but we all touch base every now and again and uh, it's mad because it's been five years and people still think it was on the screens last year because it's always right. repeating, That's you know, right. and people still wonder when it's coming back and I'm afraid to say it's never coming back. <laughs> well, well, on a personal note, and I know I speak for literally millions of people here, it's definitely the best thing that ever came out of Ireland in a TV production. Yeah. It certainly is. Yeah, without a doubt it did. Well, I think the key to that was the writing from Stuart Carlin. Um, a lot of casual sort of fans would look at it and just see he's taking headlines and stuff, but when you look at it and you know good writing and you know about the craft writing, yeah. which I know vaguely about, I see what he does on the page, and I've ne- uh, to this day I haven't been encountered with such good writing, you know, yeah. and then all the good actors come together at the right Absolutely. time, so it was a bit of a phenomenon. Absolutely. Can you tell us, maybe, John, uh, what it was like for you growing up and what shaped your early years and thinking, and I suppose especially from your traveller background? Yeah, so basically... My mother and father got engaged when they were very young, typical of travellers. Mm-hmm. Um, my father would have been about 16, maybe, no, 17, my mother would have been 16. And then they were engaged for about two and a half years and ready to get married any day. When my father, who was a schizophrenic and mentally ill from a young age, he hijacked a taxi one night mm-hmm. and he crashed into a wall and he broke his hip. And he was put on armed guard in, um, in the hospital. Right. And my mother went in and they were worried because you know the two and a half years already um, not being uh, and hadn't been married uh, they were worried that this he was going to be locked up for a few more years and this engagement was going to go on for six or seven years so she went into the hospital to visit him and she escaped him out the window and he went straight to London on the boat what year was this? this was in 1989 right okay and then I was born in London a fact my brothers would never let me forget so you're a Brit then? I'm a Brit basically <laughs> like the great James Connolly I'm a Brit um, so that's actually the funny thing is man it's, we're laughing at it now and I laugh at it all the time but me being born in London really shaped me actually mm-hmm. um, because I was brought up with a sort of identity issues around being born in London mm-hmm. you know I came back when I was 11 months old lived in Kulak most of life and in my family I was brought up with 52 first cousins living in the same camp with me 12 aunts and uncles God knows how many second and third cousins and then my grandparents you know what I mean so a lot of people in a big huge encampment yeah. in Kulak and, and in front of us was a big gap between us and the settled people whose travellers always moved out to the outskirts of towns cities, suburbs always on the outside yeah. and I, although they wanted us to assimilate uh, which is a bad word but we couldn't even integrate because there was always a gap between us and behind us was just miles and miles of fields where we used to go playing our grandmother would send us down there to catch fairies and leprechauns and in our minds we could have we saw them and how know? many did you catch? Uh, many I think I was the number one catcher <laughs> while everybody else was catching bees I was catching invisible <laughs> leprechauns um, so that was kind of growing up like we, it was just all imagination and you would beg your mother at night to let us stay up for another hour, you know, because you'd be trying to get to the bed for school so you could just listen to the stories because we'd have a bonfire every night with 50 people around and the older people would tell you the stories about the road, about ancient Ireland and Gaelic Ireland and all the myths and legends and facts and histories. And it sounds like a idyllic Oh, it was. It was for in, a child growing up. It was in many ways. And we had, say, out of the 52 first cousins, about 20 were born in London. So the, the rest of them would call us, you're the English bastards and all this. This is to be saying to us, you know. And, we, and we, we, we'd be really annoyed, like, because we were... And what happened was all of us, all the 20 that were born in London, ended up being the real proud Irish out of everybody. Mm-hmm. And Travers in general are very proud Irish, but we became very staunch about it. Mm-hmm. And all of us got, you know, in, uh, interest in history and, you know, all of us obsessed with the tricolour and... 
just because we were getting slagged for being less than Irish yeah. than them, you know. So in that sense, it was very idyllic. Um, but then after my father committed suicide, um, me and my brother would have experienced a lot of bullying. And bullying for traveler, from traveller kids and, oh, your daddy committed suicide. And then older people and sometimes adults and physically getting bullied and fighting literally every single day of our lives on the way to school, on the way back, fighting with settled kids in there, black eyes on top of black eyes, headaches, all that kind of stuff. What age were you, John, if you made me ask? Eight years of age when my father passed. So the, like, there was about four years of constant bullying until I got really sick of it and a giant boxing. And uh, I remember when I joined boxing the first night, uh, the trainer said to us, he was a real old school Dublin trainer, you know, he says, uh, this is your first night and your last night, because you can get your coats and fuck off after this night, right? But he was, it was his testing you, you know, real old school. And me and the other two lads went on a jog with everybody else, me and the two lads would came on me, and when we came back, at the end of the night, I'd done a bit of pads and showed a bit of anger and aggression. And at the end of the night, um, he told the other two to fuck off and get their coats, and he said, you can stay. And within six months, I won a Dublin title, a Leagues title, a Leinster title, and an Irish title, and the first Irish champion in the club in four years. The next year, I won the same again, uh, and I got a silver medal in the Four Nations on top of that. And the next year, I got the gold, which is the five-star champion, they call it. Sorry, I'm just taking a note to myself here not to piss you off today. Yeah. <laughs> so I did that. And actually, man, I have a little funny story out of that. Uh, when I went, to, I went for fucking revenge, man, in uh, the, the second games, I wanted to get the gold. I was obsessed with this fucking gold, you know. And the night before the final, I was fighting this English fella, Cockney fella, and he says... Uh, he came up to me and the Irish were typically very humble and the English were, boxers were typically very cocky, you know, and he came up to me and he says, oh, I'm going to knock you out, you paddy mush. And I said, oh, hi, okay, cool. And I went in and I knocked him out in the second round and I broke six of his ribs. And uh, the proudest moment was I was, on, I was on the podium and I was in first place and he was in second and I had the tricolor kind of wrapped around me with the Irish national anthem. And I came home with the DVD and showed me two brothers who were always slagging me over being English. And I showed them the tattoo I got, which is this tattoo. Connors fighting Irish, you okay, know, nice. and and the first thing my brother Joe said to me was, "You should have got a British bulldog." <laughs> <laughs> so he still wouldn't accept me. So that that's what made me obsess about Irish history and anthropology and just where we came from as people in general and the Tua clan culture we come from, which still exists within the traveling community today, which is what they're trying to break up, especially now with all these mass evictions, you know. Okay, John. In March 2017, after a long campaign, the Irish government declared that the travelling community would be formally recognised as an ethnic minority. Can you describe to us how you felt that day? Hmm. Yeah, well, it was a good day. I suppose here's the problem with it. Okay, in um, in Britain, travellers have an ethnic uh, status, but it's legally binding. Mm-hmm. So have you ever heard the saying that it's not worth the paper it's printed on? Yes. Well, our ethnic, ethnic status wasn't even printed on a paper. It was just a verbal gesture, and it was made very clear that we had no extra rights or protection of our culture for it. Because if they made it legally binding, they'd have to do what they'd have to do for the first time. They'd have to try to preserve our culture mm-hmm. and put something in place to preserve our culture instead of trying to des- destroy it, which is what they've always tried to do, do with the Irish Free State Government. Um, if you look back at 1963, the report on itinerancy was headed by Charlie Hawhey, and he said... 
we need the full absorption of the travel community into the settled community before there can be a final solution. Mm-hmm. This is 20 years after Nazi Germany. Mm-hmm. They brought in the assimilation policies and within that commission there were suggestions made by politicians and councillors and elected TDs in order to deal with travellers. Some people said sterilise the women, some said castrate the men, some said put them out in Spike Island, some said take their kids Honestly. away. Honestly. Yeah, yeah. But, but and these, the, are all, these are stuff you can read online. Like. Yeah, but, but like, in fairness, just to hear you say that now in 2019, well, everything the that Brit- happened in our country yeah. not that long. Well, they used the exact same tactics the British used against the Irish. Uh, They used the exact same uh, propaganda. When I say exact same, I'm talking literally the exact same. Because uh, I've studied this going back to the, when the Irish Free State was formed, and, the, and they start talking and all airing about the ugly image of the tinker in the countryside that would ter, deter foreign investment in order to rebuild the country after the Civil War. And then they start bringing in vagrancy acts, and it all culminated in the 1963 report. And then that created a huge knock on effect in which they start, they be basically, it coincided with the with the end, the end of the tinsmitting trade for travellers, which was a way of life and a way of making money. And the government capitalised on this. The, re- the reason why the Tinsman trade ended is because plastic came in and it was way cheaper and more expendable. Mm-hmm. And worse for the environment. Yeah. Because you could just break it easily. Yeah. Um, so they said, oh, they were really clever. They said, right, this is an opportunity here. And what they did was, for the first time, they offered travellers social welfare, which travellers weren't allowed to have it. Okay. And the exchange was most travellers lived in rural Ireland. They didn't live in Dublin. Yeah. They didn't go to big cities because traditionally what would happen throughout the years when you went to big cities the Brits would they would take kids they would rape they would do various different things to travellers they would take whatever they had take their tins take whatever they had so they were used to not going into the big cities over the British soldiers basically especially Dublin because it was the second biggest port in the British Empire Yeah, you know and it's Anglicized, a very anglicised city you know so and was then so they, they offered to the dole, but everybody had to move to Dublin. And they just put all travellers in who never moved or travelled with each other before in the same sites and caused rifts between people and gave them the dole, but only the percentage of the dole that settled people got until they were 18 months settled. This is a part of their assimilation policies. So we're still feeling the knock-on effect of that. And I was born in a generation then that were fully settled and never got to travel, you know. So you kind of hear all these stories. Yeah. And then that's when, I suppose, after the first generation were settled, that's when you start getting the high suicide rate, the increase in drug and alcohol intake. Like, we have the highest suicide rate in the world. 11% of travellers die by suicide of any people uh, per capita in the world. That's mental. Yeah, it's, it's crazy, and it's something that needs to be addressed. And one of the things that does fuck us up is not being, not being allowed to live our way of life around the family. When you start separating, it's putting into social housing, you lose your identity. And when you look at any people who lose their identity, terrible things happen. If you look at the Aboriginal people, if you look at the indigenous people of America, if you look at people up north when their things are getting ripped away from them, thank you, things are being ripped away from them, um, you see the exact same thing happening, yes. you know? Um, so that's sort of the world I was born into. And I got when I eventually got into acting, um, I got into acting when I was like 20, I was really depressed, suicidal, and my brother suggested I, I try acting. And I said, I'll do it for therapy, you know? And I went and did an acting class in the Abbey and... Um, I just fell in love with it, and it was just a new sort of vehicle, a new world that I could explore, you know. And then that's when the sort of discrimination within the film industry started, because no one wants to audition me, no one wants to, you know, even despite the fact of like 25 film credits now, uh, I've won an IFTA, I've nominated for another IFTA, I still can't get an agent in Ireland to represent me, even after the IFTA speech. I got a load of English agents want to represent me who are way bigger than the Irish agents, but no Irish agents come in for me, you know. So you're kind of still kind of going through that kind of bullshit. You we're, know? We're, we'll touch on that in a little bit. Yep. Just getting back to the 2017 report. Yeah. Since then, has anything changed for the? No, it's gotten worse. Day? It's gotten way worse. So look what they're doing now. So remember, I talked about Charlie High talking about the final solution. Mm-hmm. Well, the final solution now is these mass evictions. 
this is the final solution. This is it. This is the final solution. They're just now better at wording it. Back then, they didn't give a shit about that stuff. You know, now they're better at wording it. So they're bringing in seven days a week. They're bringing in security. It's going to be a 750,000 euro contract that they're going to bring in. These are vexing. Yeah, I've already heard rumours about who they're going to be hiring. I'm not going to say this in here because it's a bit, it's a bit inflammatory, mm-hmm. uh, the, the group that they're going to be hiring. I think, I think the public, especially those that keep up to date on social media, will be well aware of who you're speaking about. Yeah. So... That's what's happening now, and this is the final solution. They're going to take our families away. They're going to break up our tour, our clans, basically. That's what they want to do. Uh, and they don't know where to put us, because now we're in the worst homeless crisis the country has ever seen since the famine. And basically, or the, 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 but, the starvation, the but genocide, yet, actually. But yet, no, there's plenty of ghost towns around yeah, the country. Yeah, 100%. Well, there's 70,000, like, there's like 70,000 empty homes in the, in the country, and there's, yeah. there's like 15,000 homeless people or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? But where are travellers going to go? They're going to make us homeless. Where are people who are living on council land, happy with where we're living, living around their family, and we're living in the worst homeless crisis ever, where Ireland was the only country that didn't go far right in terms of the European elections. So we've a very leftist council and all that. And, the Europe, and everybody voted in the Europe, and yet the first port of call for the councils in Dublin is to evict all travel families. Like, what the fuck? This is a national disgrace. Imagine if they were trying to do this about, you know, um, Nigerians or Polish or whatever. Imagine these, if you, if you look at all the things we've went through, imagine like children, traveler children being put on a criminal database from birth. This only came out a few years ago. Imagine that was Nigerian children were put on the, the criminal data, database but, from birth. But, but, imagine, but, but, it'd be an sorry, international scandal. Can, can, excuse my ignorance here. Mm. Is that a fact? That's an absolute fact. A whistleblower came out and said that. That, that travelling Traveling children, children at So do you know birth? how it happened? No, what happened uh, were considered criminals. So this is how it happened. So a traveller man got pulled up on the side of a road, him and his wife. And he had a kid that was about a year old. And the kid showed up in the criminal database from the, from the guardie that pulled him. But the guardie that pulled him was horrified by this. He said, how can this kid be, can be on the criminal database? He's only 12 months. You know, so it ended up being a scandal. Where thank fuck for whistleblowers. I'm totally pro whistleblowers. People who are brave enough to come out against the system Is this and expose. 2019, this right? was about 2014, 15, yeah, no, maybe. But I'm saying like, yeah, uh, this is ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like things like that. If you look at those sort of things, I had a cousin Aaron Joyce, 14 years of age. He died of um, of um, a kidney disease, and his body was refused from the local funeral home because it was a traveller. Like these sort of things, if you were to turn these around and say, do it about Nigeria instead of Polish, it'd be international news. Ireland would be known as a Nazi country. But this gets, this gets put on to us, and then people are telling us to grow up, people are telling us to get over it, people are telling us this, that, and the other, but they have no idea actually what's happening to us. There's no empathy whatsoever. And they have no idea what we hold. We're holding the keys to Gaelic Ireland. A lot of our traditions, our family, our obsession, our community spirit, the way we live and die for each other, and I know up north that's very strong, um, and our Tua clan where we live around each other and our extended family, this is the ancient Tua that the Brits tried to break up, mm. that they tried to de-Gaelicise the people. If you look back on all the doctrines in the reconquest of Ireland and and the, the sheriffs who used to go around, their objective was to settle the native Irish because two-thirds of the Irish populations were nomadic in 500 years ago, right? And to make them settle so they paid taxes to the king or queen, make them individual as opposed to community-based, which was Gaelic, seen as very Gaelic. And we were somehow kept a lot of this community spirit that comes from Gaelic Ireland, and now it's the Irish government that are going to have the last blow to kill it, not the Brits. Now, isn't that fucking amazing? What the fuck? What kind of country are we living in, like? Kind of speechless after some of that, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. John, just moving on slightly. Thanks for that. And we'll retouch on a yeah. few of the things we've already discussed. Your acceptance speech at the 2018 IFTAS received widespread publicity mm. as you used that moment to highlight 
the difficulties and prejudice you faced as a traveller in trying to land acting roles and even secure an agent, which you alluded to earlier there. Two questions here. Firstly, how would you describe the public reaction to your speech? And secondly, can you perhaps elaborate on the prejudice you and the travelling community face on a daily basis now, even in 2019? Well, uh, let's go to just the discrimination. So, we can't get into clubs, pubs, bars, restaurants, shopping centres, gyms, leisure. This is constant stuff that we're getting refused from every traveller, every day. Uh, we're rejected absolutely every single place we go. We get discrimination in all institutions and housing. We're seven times more likely to be homeless than settled people, yet they want to do these mass evictions. I mean, I can't even begin to describe how normal discrimination is against us like how normal it is for us like we laugh about it because it's the only thing we can do you know like I've my grandmother who's my hero because she was a great activist and a very proud North woman as well she um, she she told me to stop even though she was my hero she told me to stop at all this activism because it'll never get anywhere you just have to accept that it's and every traveller thinks that way now that it's such a defeatist mentality they think it, the fight is so big it can never ever be won do you know what I mean so it's ingrained in our psyche now and it's starting to create internalised shame and hatred within ourselves but, but obviously your profile through your hard work and um, stamina and dogged determination yeah. and, and that's meant in a good way obviously yeah. you know obviously now you've got a platform and a profile and I suppose you're, you're doing something to help break down these barriers. I'm trying. I think I'm still very cynical. About, I don't know about making change and stuff like that um, because I keep getting knockbacks, but I, I can't help. But I still have the energy to do it, so yeah. I'm going to continue to yeah. do it. Going back to the IFTA speech, I had, like, it was got six million hits online. I had people, like, huge celebrities over in England texting me. I had Conor McGregor t- messaging me, Tyson Fury, Carl Frampton, all heroes of mine. Uh, and it was amazing, like, and it was a great kind of, uh, just a great sort of time where I kind of basked, I basked a bit into good energy. You strike me as someone that doesn't, um, that shoots from hip and mm. wouldn't maybe re-rehearse something that much. Never. Did, did had you this plan? I don't even rehearse had, me play it. <laughs> That's <laughs> the truth. Had you, had you that, um, if this speech, had you it rehearsed or did you just I say, didn't rehearse it at all. No. I'll go with it. I didn't rehearse it. The only thing, man... I, first of all, I didn't think we were going to win. I was going. I thought I was clever enough to know from the momentum. Uh, I knew. I know the film industry in the scene, and from the momentum of Carver Gangsters, I had won like about seven or eight awards on the road in festivals, in this festival circuit, right? Best actor, best actor, and the most likely award each time was me winning, as opposed to best picture or best sure. writing or whatever. That's the way it just was. Everybody yeah. knew that. So I knew if we were going to win one. Like, we were nominated for five IFTAs, and in all fairness, like, the IFTAs are partially funded by the film board. The film board didn't fund us, so... I, I noticed that little yeah. jab you give them. Yeah, so, like, we... Like, there was other films that were really crap, and they were nominated for more IFTAs, and I was actually angry that we weren't nominated for about ten of them, and that's just being honest. But I knew if someone was going to win, it was going to be me, and the only thing I knew that I was going to get in, although I didn't think about how i get it in, because when I rehearse stuff, it's not good for me. I just shoot for the hip, and it's the best way for me. This way it works, because I come from a very oral tradition. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like, yeah. for and that's all kind of spontaneous right so what I knew what I was going to do was I was going to relate it back to creativity and mental health and my father and the connection of, of those kind of things and I didn't know how it was going to go and on the way up to the stage I saw the film board there and I went I'm going to get you <laughs> but I thought 
think of a way to do it with comedy a bit mm-hmm. and don't be spy because it's comedy and satire is always more effective absolutely you know and, and, and you don't want to be that big angry person exactly you know? right so I did it in that way I says I'd like to thank BAI and Film Base all our funders and uh, the film board oh no wait you didn't fund us that's right you know <laughs> and I said well obviously self-sabotage is my best trait yes you know so people got a laugh out of that yeah, and then I, I, I kind of hit home emotionally in the end and it's the emotional stuff about the mental health that really got people and made it go viral abroad and in the UK and even in America people picking it up so mm-hmm. so after that I had a number of English agents got in touch me I signed with one of them later I've left him because he doesn't he didn't see my sort of career where I wanted to go with it I turned down a few things that I didn't want to do politically speaking didn't suit me um, and no Irish agents came in for me so nothing changed whatsoever in Ireland and I actually did a different speech two months later when we won the three part series uh, documentary IFTA Mm-hmm. Uh, for John Connors the Travers which is the history and the culture and uh, our relationship with the state of three parts areas. and that only got like 20,000 hits because that was a really damning one yeah. about Ireland and none of the media picked that up they completely ignored it and more than more than ignored it TG Cahar cut it down to 8 seconds right and right. if they didn't release it until 2 or 3 weeks later yeah. when when I did the other one they released it that night because yes. he wanted it to go viral but they didn't want this one to go viral because it was damning to everybody yeah. and it was holding everybody mm-hmm. to fire you know so that was the irony of it very good you also used that speech John to draw attention to issues surrounding mental health and well-being yeah what can the government and society, I suppose, do to ensure that the area of mental health is given the attention and, I suppose, resources it desperately needs and deserves? Well, stop cutting budgets, stop cutting mental health budgets, which is what they're doing every year. This is crazy. Like, we, like in, in Ireland alone, at the island of Ireland, like, forget, if you just look at the free state, for starters, it's, it's a very high suicide rate. You look up north, it's even way higher, you know? Uh, and then Travers are then even way higher again. And they're cutting the mental health budget every single year. I mean, this is crazy. Now we're good at talking about talking about mental health, but we're not actually talking about mental health. So we still need sort of a cultural revolution around mental health. What practical steps needs to happen now? Well, funding needs to be put in place. We need a... we need to have um, more resources re- resources in our community centres and we need more community centres. So many ravaged areas there in Dublin I see have no community centres in the middle of it. And the community centre needs to be a hub of creativity. It needs to, and creativity is a very important word. That's something that needs to be brought in and used to combat mental health more because there's huge studies uh, from psychoanalysts and studies going across for years to show creativity can be a huge component to battle mental health. And that's why I mentioned that in the, in the speech, is because that's something I've experienced myself. So we need to get creative about about tackling mental health. Everybody is creative. Everybody has the ability to be creative. You know, so I think that can be something. But restore all their budgets. I mean, everything that was cut cut to bits during the recession. Bring the budgets back up. If you this is a, like they put so much money into car accidents in Ireland, right? In, and into ads and all, like twice the mental health budget or something. And more people die of suicide. And it, and that's the only reported suicide because there's still a lot of shame around it, and a lot of people don't get reported as. And I think it's important. To point out this isn't just a southern problem this is an island-wide problem oh yeah well up north it's, it's worse yeah up more and even up north even in Donegal which is still free state status that's uh, worse as well because that's like the forgotten county exactly and everybody's right. emigrating from there yeah. you know what I mean so places like that and then if you go down to a place like Limerick as well that's bad that's right. you know what I mean so the more wealthy areas and there's a, an absolute connection between poverty and poor Certainly mental health is. and poverty and crime right. these are things that cannot be denied that's right John, in 2018, you famously tweeted a researcher for the BBC Nolan Show, and I quote, Thanks for getting in touch. 
but I will forever boycott that show because of Stephen's disgusting mockery of the Irish language and native language of the whole island. Can you tell us your motivation for doing so? And secondly, can you perhaps outline your views on why you support an Irish language act in the north? <laughs> because it's the native language of Ireland. Like Same, most of these, most of these, it? most of these unionists are coming from Scottish background. They're fucking Gaelic speakers. The f- what the fuck? Do they not understand it's their native language too? Let's all embrace this language. There's been emigration between Ireland and Scotland going back since before the written word. We actually don't know how far it goes back. Going back to the Picts, going back to all those people. We are the same fucking people. That's the fucking gas thing. We're Gaels. We're not Anglo-Saxons. They're not Anglo-Saxons as much as they want to be. They're just not. There's more Anglo-Saxons in Dublin than there is up north. That's the funny thing. These are Gaels. So we need to make them understand as well. It's their language. We don't own that fucking language. No one owns that language. It's all of our language. It's all of our language, and it needs to have equal status. This is this is a human rights issue. Did you ever get a chance to speak to Stephen Nolan about this? No, because I, do, I wouldn't speak to him. <laughs> I've seen he's lost a lot of weight uh, recently. He's he's inspiring me now. <laughs> I lost a good bit of weight a few months ago, but uh, my family be going through a bit of turmoil. But uh, when my grandfather died, he passed away. God, he was like our hiking. But uh, I've gained it all back. But I seen a picture of him only on Twitter the other day, and I says I'm going to start losing my weight now as well. I'm going to challenge him. <laughs> very good. Very good. Um, but no, look, man, I, I think it's that's. I can't stress how important that issue is, man. I really, really, really can't. And I, I go up there a lot up north, and I do talks in different places. I did it up in Dunkern and up in the markets and various different places and in the falls. I've been up in the Fairley up there a few times, and I see how important the language is to these people, and I see the enthusiasm within the community to learn it. You know what I mean? And, and that has to have equal status, of I, course. I think from our point of view, is no one has anything to fear from a language. Not at all. It's, it's the mindset of people. Yeah. That's yeah. all it is. Yeah. And we recently in Shared Ireland done a podcast with Linda Irvine. I'm not too sure if you know Linda. No. Um, <coughs> Linda is um, a Protestant yeah. and um, she runs Irish language classes in East Belfast. Right, yeah. Which is in... Uh, oh, I've seen a little loyalist. doc of her actually on YouTube. Yeah. yeah. yeah which yeah. is in you know, lo- yeah. Loyalist. I've seen them enjoying it as well. And by Linda's own words, 70% of the intake she runs 15 classes a week. 70% of the people that take these Irish classes are from a, a Protestant That's Union brilliant. loyalist background. Yeah. And I personally think it's great to see the community accepting something and embracing it. Yeah. Because as you rightfully said, yeah. it's, it's our heritage, it's our 100%. culture. It's who we are. Just. 100% man. And even going to going back to reunification, something we talked about over the phone, um, it's something obviously the unionist community are terrified of mm-hmm. and you have some rational fear I mean if you look at what happened down south with the Catholic Church and all that and you can see that but the Catholic Church are completely dead now right. they're dead like their attendance is like 8% of people going fucking the church and they're all over 65 mm-hmm. so forget, they have no power politically anymore actually they're, they're, they're very much frowned upon by the Irish public in general uh, and if you look at Protestants down south they are prosperous people who are included more than anybody so I mean Ireland is a more, more inclusive than it's ever been and it's any a, true Republican will actually believe in that cultural society totally and any and, true and Republican would believe in that and the north has nearly went backwards listen our flag is green white and orange not gold it's green white and orange Protestant Catholic peace that's what that means you know so to, to me that's why it's not I recently just tweeted it's the most beautiful flag in the world because it means that you know it's not it's not representing hate it's, it's about coming together and it's about time we came together and Brexit is going to be the thing that causes this and I suppose in the time of the year that we are where now starting July flags and emblems especially in the north yeah. take on significant um, I suppose added value mm. and they can be divisive and I suppose you know coming depending on what side of it 
the coin we want to look at, but I think it's important we look at all sides here, mm. is that the Irish trickler, um, somebody once told me in a podcast, um, can be seen from a, a unionist perspective as being draped over uh, coffins yeah. years ago, so it was a symbol. And I suppose from a nationalist republican point of view, the Union Jack, the paratrooper flags, uh, banners supporting Soldier F and things like this can be seen as equally divisive. Yeah, and, and know, they are to each other, they are to each other, but you know, look, I'm going to have to just stay true to who I am in the sense that like, we talked about the tricolour and what that means and what I think that means and what we know it means and what it was meant to mean. Um, the butcher's apron is a completely different thing um, that's a flag that flew all across the world we cannot forget that at least 150 million people were killed by the British Empire more than any other empire in human history and more than the next five combined uh, they raped, robbed, pillaged, enslaved and murdered so that flag doesn't like when I see that I look at that like a Jewish person would look at a swastika and would a swastika fly in Israel? No it wouldn't so when I see these Union Jack tops in pennies here in Dublin in the Collins Street I go in and I turn all the tops upside down so people can't see them that's how sick I am that's just being honest with you because I think it's crazy but our, because we're colonised for 800 years we're so brainwashed it's actually unbelievable so we look at that and we go oh yeah inclusiveness I, like, I'd actually ban that flag from, from Ireland the whole that's just me personally to be honest I can't look at it I get sick when I look at that and I see anybody flying it I get sick and listen this is not just the Irish who get sick if you go to India they'll get sick and parts of India for that all across Asia you know what I mean all across any, loads of places two thirds of the world that they conquered the sun never set in the British Empire yeah the sun never set in the British Empire because because why <laughs> because why like do you know why go on because it was dark to take the eyes out of everybody's head <laughs> So listen, that's a bit of banter. And listen, I have Protestant friends, and I've actually Protestant friends from the North as well. And you need to be able to have these conversations. And uh, I believe in inclusives and all that, but I ain't going to say that the tricolour is equally as divisive as, as the butcher's apron, because it, like, it isn't. It just isn't. Like, you know, I'd, be, I'd be being false going for that, but I believe in total inclusiveness, and I think the, a united Ireland should mean being united with our Protestant brothers and sisters, and we're all the same sort of people. We all come from the Gales anyway, and if they still want to maintain their... Like, a lot of people down south, the Protestants... Um, you did the Church of Ireland and you know although they would consider themselves Irish and all that they still are proud of their heritage as well and where they come from uh, and that's totally fine and totally, and totally included and they're doing pretty well like an average Protestant make a lot more money than Catholics down south I hope people up north realise that you know okay interesting to hear you're taking that tone mm. tell me this what is the biggest myth of the travelling community that you would like to dispel the biggest myth is that uh, women are oppressed by the men they get beaten up and all this sort of stuff. That's the biggest myth because um, it's actually so far from the truth you wouldn't believe it because the women are the leaders in our community. Um, women control the family. They have total control over the kids. Um, they look after them. Um, women like usually would look after financial stuff with men. You know, they'd be the more smarter ones. 90% of our activists throughout our history have been women. Okay, my grandmother Chrissy Ward, formerly Donahue, and her sister Nan Joyce, formerly Donahue, were two of the greatest activists we've ever had, along with her uncle Joe Donahue, who was actually IRA, um, but fought in the British Army in World War II and was a sniper and came back and joined the IRA. And, uh, and in our family, we have that, and it's women, women, women have dominated our activism. If it wasn't for the women, we wouldn't have 
any rights at all. We wouldn't have got sites. We would, we'd be obliterated probably already as a culture. So that's something that they like to just throw out there because they see macho men and then they just say, oh, well, the women must be... And that's, it couldn't be further from the truth. Is there domestic violence? Yes, but where is there not domestic violence? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's always everywhere. an issue yeah. everywhere in yeah. every community. Can, can tell me, is, can travellers marry outside their own community? And if so, is there an age limit, even if they can? No, like, well, look, my brother's with a settled girl. My uncle is with a settled girl. They have kids, they have families, totally accepted. And what about the female members of the travelling community? Is it okay for them? I have two cousin so? female members that are with settled, settled men. Is it... Is it um, frowned upon in some parts, some communities, yeah, in, because you don't, you don't understand that there's so much diversity within, within travellers mm-hmm. itself. So if you look at, um, if you go to Mayo or you go to over them places, there are different types down the country, are different types. Within every family, we even have our own family slang. Language differs our own language because we have our own language, the gammon or the cant, depending if you're coming from north or south. Mm-hmm. So there's the, the same divisions, you know, that kind of way. Okay. So our community is actually very different. So some families are way more traditional would accept it less some don't give a shit really and it just depends where you go basically in my family because we've been in Dublin a long time and living around settled people we totally we've loads of intermarriage within our family and settled kids okay. tell me a little bit about bare knuckle boxing mm. or is that another myth that's not a myth that's something I love <laughs> I fought bare knuckle myself loads of times love it uh, and uh, I absolutely promote it at every chance I can I know it's not very PC but I couldn't give a bollocks and um, yeah it's, it's self-policing because what people have to understand is we could never um, trust the Gardaí, right? The Gardaí are an arm of the state. They were always used to evict us. They were the friends with the council. The councils have always been historically our worst enemies because they were always evicting us onto a different district and it was always the police who were doing this. Mm-hmm. You know, So we have an inbuilt fear mm-hmm. of the Gardaí. We don't ring the Gardaí. We have a dispute. We go out and box the face of each other. Mm-hmm. Right. doesn't sound civilised, but guess what? I don't give a shit if it's civilised or not. I think people are getting too civilised. I think what's civilised, the civilised version of this is, hmm, you could put on a suit and a tie, you could hire a solicitor, and you could sue that person for everything you have and take three or four years and both of you waste a load of money and mental stress and you can all be very civilised and it'll all be great and cheerio and we can just learn from the British system that we adopted anyway and all our institutions are based on their systems or we could just go out and punch the face of each other and have a point to get us afterwards and sing song. I prefer the latter. So it's not something I'm ever going to condemn. I will condemn feuding. That's completely I was, different. I was going to just ask you about feuding. Mm. <clears throat> Feuding obviously happens in all walks of society as it well, does, yeah. not just the travellers, I yeah. accept that. But sometimes I suppose it suits the media narrative yeah. to portray traveller feuds as being this ugly gangland thing. Yeah. Which, well, they're never gangland, that's the thing, because gangland's related to drugs and things like that. Yeah. They're always family feuds. Look, mm-hmm. okay, so put it this way. I'm going to be straight up honest with this, and people are not going to like it, and travellers are not going to, travel activists won't like it, regular travellers will, because they'll just know it's the truth. Mm-hmm. If you go back to Gaelic Ireland, we were pre colonisation, we were about 90. 90 odd kingdoms that's what we were we're always fighting and this is why we're easily colonised because we constantly betrayed each other when the Brits come over because we always wanted to get one over on the other clan this is just and if you wanted to go to a different two or a different clan you needed permission from their high king and usually it was cattle people and herd people to travel across we're a very feudal society yeah. that feudal culture has still um, remained within the travellers right mm-hmm. now I'm not saying all travellers are, feud- are in feuds because that's bullshit majority or not but there's still some parts of that but what has made things way worse is the advancement in technology mm-hmm. the internet YouTube Facebook this is what advanced it because everything then they're saying about each other gets broadcasted online mm-hmm. and every traveller gets to comment on it yeah. and then it pisses them off yeah. so technology has actually done travellers a major disservice and it's put all our private business out there in front of the world you know because mm-hmm. one time ago the vast majority of fights well one time ago there was no fights on camera and then when the camera 
camera come in for many years, the vast majority of fights still weren't on camera. And sometimes what happens now with a fight, which you usually walk away with a fair fight and just have a point with your man. Sometimes now, say if it's a draw, someone that's commenting and going, well, I thought your man wanted to even know it's a draw. And this sort of thing happened, so technology has really fucking fucked a lot of that shit up for us and caused more feuds, man. And it's been really bad for us. And good in other ways, like Facebook has kind of been good for Travers in the sense that Travers were now marrying... So usually if you're a Traveller from Dublin, you'll marry a Traveller from Dublin. Mm-hmm. But with Facebook, you're a Traveller from Dublin, you could marry a Traveller from Belfast or Cork mm-hmm. or Donegal, you know what I mean, or Wexford. So it's kind of marrying into different, which is always good to grow to a bigger pool of people. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so there's been upsides and downsides. But I mean, everybody's dealing with technology and how it's changed and whatever. You know, and there's this, and there's also this sort of thing. Like Travers were traditionally very humble people and and anti-materialism. Yes. And the advancement of technology has changed that a bit as well with younger Travers who are kind of broadcasting what they're getting for presents to women after husbands and other wives get jealous. And there's this mm, sort of competitiveness yes. yeah. now that has been created by technology but again, that never existed. That happens in all. Oh, absolutely. Well, well, no, we're, we're now living in a world of narcissists now over Instagram and yeah. Facebook. And anyway, so, I mean, what I'm saying is we're uh, we're not null to that either. Yeah, you know what yeah. I mean? We've been affected by that too. I've often heard about um, this myth, or you can maybe dispel it or not, that there's a king of the travellers. Yeah. Is no. there? No, 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 no. That's bullshit. There's all, there, and see the thing, king. No one would say a king, really. Yeah. There was one fellow who was nicknamed the King Ward who was considered like you know he was the best bare knuckle fighter of his time ah. and he was like he's a relation to mine actually because I'm half ward uh, like it, it was a great story about him like years ago it was like maybe in the 30s um, a fella came from Dundalk to Chum. he was in Chum to fight him on horseback you know and uh, and he landed down in his camp at 6 in the morning and and the King Ward was inside the wagon and he was smoking a fag and he was drinking a cup of tea and your man came along and he said are you the King Ward and he says, yeah. and he says, well, I heard you're the best man in Ireland. That's what we'd say, the best man in Ireland, not the king, okay. the best man in Ireland. Yes. Okay, and, but there's always an opinion who the best man is. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not. Yeah. Sometimes there's natural bias, you know. Mm-hmm. So he was considered the best man of his time, uh, but he was nicknamed the king, yeah. you know. And that's what the king came from, the king of travels. So he says, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm the king. And he says, right, well, I want to fight you. Have a fair play man here, a fair play man as a referee. Yeah. And he said, all right. And he said, he, your man over there, our family member, he's he'll show fair play for me. And the story goes, he put the fag down on the stove. He drank a sup of tea. He walked out, hit him a right hand, knocked him out, went back and smoked the fag and drank the tea. <laughs> and he never took his jacket off. That was the thing about the King Ward. The King Ward would never take his jacket off. He'd always okay. keep his jacket on for a fight. Because he didn't have to. He didn't have he was to. That good. He was that good. He, and it was, he'd, fitter, he'd figure he's disrespecting him, his own self. Exactly. You know, from Very taking good. his jacket off for any man. A nice and, story. And they're not worth it, yeah. A nice story. So they're the stories I would have grew up with, you know what I mean? Very good. Very um, good. So, yeah, the King of Travers thing is a myth. There's no, we don't go, he's the King of the Travers. We go, he's probably the best man in Ireland. Ireland or this Joyce fella is probably the best man or this McDonough fella is the best man what do you make of your guy I forget his name sorry as soon as you the research I did uh, Paddy he wasn't big brother he's an English traveller ah Paddy uh, Doherty Paddy yeah. Doherty and yeah. he'd be another far out relation we're all related to that <laughs> okay. yeah but uh, no like I, I thought you know what was great about Paddy Doherty man um, a lot of travellers would get a bit of fame or they get a bit of success they try to uh, become settled people you know uh-huh. and Paddy did the exact opposite like Paddy went into the big brother house yeah. and he's still talking like a traveller he's still saying little words that we say and he didn't give a flying fuck yeah. and people just love these modesty he, he was real he was real and yeah. he was literally telling the public 
he was uh, he was literally telling the public to vote him out because I just want to go home to see my children. And then he ended up winning because he didn't care. Well, everybody else is crying if they're going to be evicted or not because we don't look at the shit like that as they're small to us. So he just went in for the crack. He went in the, uh, from his point of view. Now old traveller, he just gone now a few pounds I'm going in for. Yeah, you know what I mean. That's it. I'm going in for a few quid. That's and what, it. And what about another? Um, I think originally Englishman, the same as yourself. Yeah. Sorry about that. Yeah. So, um, what about Tyson Fury? Nick, uh, th- so Tyson. Th- relation to? No, no, no. I, I don't think so. But uh, Tyson actually, he um, so he he's a he's an interesting uh, background. So his mother would be a gypsy. Now there's a difference. Up north, you don't really know the difference, and down south, you don't either. But up north, we call all travellers gypsies. A lot of people, right? Yes. So there's a difference between travellers and gypsies. Gypsies originate from Indian Mount, Indian mountain people seven thousand years ago. That's where they came from. They go all across the world. They're all different religions, and whatever country they settle in, they take up that nationality. Okay. So, so that's like the Romanian gypsies. Yeah. The whole yeah, lot. yeah. But because they've been in Europe so long, they've changed and oh, interbred okay. with English people okay. and whatever. So wherever they settle, that's the nationality they become. They could be, and they could be Muslim. They could be Protestant. They could be Catholic. They could be any religion. Right. Travellers originate from Ireland, that's our origin, traditionally Catholic obviously as well, and culturally Irish. So, so that's Tyson the difference. Fury's so Muller is a gypsy, is, not a He's an Irish gypsy though. Yes. He's from Belfast. Okay. And then his father is an Irish traveller from Galway. Ah. So he's okay. a mix of both of them. Right. Because over right. in England there's a lot of gypsies and there's a lot of intermarriage between gypsies and travellers over there. So that's where a lot of it gets confused. Okay. And over there sometimes travellers adopt some gypsy ways and gypsies adopt some travellers ways yes. because there's so much intermarriage between them. Yes, very good. John, tell me this, how can relations between the settled and traveller community be improved? What can settled people do to improve that? And I suppose equally, what do traveller people need to do? Yeah, so there's a lot of fear between both communities, right? Yeah. And what happens is if you get two people who are afraid of each other and they come and meet and they have a lot of natural biases against each other, mm-hmm. they're only looking to confirm that bias. Yeah. Okay, so, any, so that is like the worst energy to come across and meet somebody. It's not coming from a good starting point. Not coming from a good starting point at all. And the only way it's going to change is education from a young age about people, you know, because where do you learn everything? From your mother and father in your environment. So are you going back to the state and schools here? School, well, I think, well, one of the things I want to do is introduce traveller history into the curriculum. The only time I've ever heard a traveller ever being mentioned in my whole education was when it was in primary school and a teacher said to me, oh, you came from the famine, and which we didn't come from the famine. Um, in no point in human history as a, as a people ever been um, settled and become nomadic and made that a part of their culture. It's the exact opposite. Any anthropologist will tell you that. So we were all Irish people were nomadic at one point. They kept getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And it was the reconquest of Ireland that actually changed all of that uh, when people started settling in the masses. Okay. So he said that to me. I went home to my grandmother and I said, well, "Did we come from the famine?" And she said, "What are you fucking on about?" And she knew where we came from. So. Education needs to be brought in. Kids need to get it at a very young age, before seven, because by seven you you have uh, formed your the whole worldview, yeah. and that's that's simple psychology. That's right. So before seven, get in four or five junior infants, traveller culture, uh, and 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 promote it as something that's positive rather than negative, and that'll help. And then when we start getting treated differently as well, we'll start our little biases as well, and we have to train. I do it with all my cousins. Some like I have some cousins that will go, oh, I'd never trust a settle fellow. I go, why, why? Oh, no, just wouldn't, you don't, you hate us. I said, you don't all hate us. And so, if you think that... So you do take on board that the travelling community have to play their part? Completely. Oh, no, completely. This is something I'm trying to do within my own community, yeah. my own family. And I'm <clears throat> lucky a lot of my family, a lot of my family, because we've lived around and intermarried with settled people, we've pretty positive views towards settled people and open-minded, but I still have little cousins and all. No, they call me knackernized, but that's not all. And if you keep thinking that, then they're going to keep calling I, me I'm just, I'm just even thinking about the small community that I live in. Yeah. And if I went to my nearest town, mm. um, a lot of the, the pubs and clubs 
there's this kind of unwritten word that if there's a crowd of travellers come in, mm. they're not allowed in. Yeah, That's before they even get a drink. But yeah. just, just And in these sense that as well, though. Let me expand on this yeah. slightly. And I'm just thinking if I owned a licensed premises, yeah. and it seems to be the case that not one traveller comes in for a pint. Yeah. There seems to be, like, pardon my expression, yeah. like a mini bus load yeah. of them. So do you know where that comes from? 10 or 20. So do you know and where that I comes from? that comes from protecting each other and looking yeah. out for each other. Yeah, but I also, also, so I, I did an interview with an anthropologist, right, in uh, UCD. Mm-hmm. So he did, like, a 10-year study of travellers. Yeah. And a typical anthropologist, he turned around and put questions on me because yeah. he wanted to know more because there was some stuff he never got to the bottom of, you know. And um, two of them were, one was... He said, why travellers are so bad at keeping time, right? And this is actually a genuine thing. I didn't this, know that one. Yeah, but this is a genuine thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Because um, because it's ingrained in us for generation of generation. Because what would happen is back in the road, maybe you'd talk about in the 50s, 60s, you'd meet your cousin in Ballon and Slow, and he'd say, listen, I'm going to be down in... Uh, West Cork, maybe Tuesday, Wednesday, maybe Thursday, I don't know, could be Friday. And they'd be that loose. And you'd be waiting and there'd be just no, none of this looking at the clock stuff. And time was so loose, yeah. you know what I mean? Because we lived on our own time, yeah. you know what I mean? So that's the way it was. Uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, so that's the way, thanks man, that, that's the way it was. So that was one of the things. And then the other was, he says, why do travellers always travel in gangs? Like, mm-hmm. all, whether it's even young girls, if you look at yes. it, one young girl goes to the shop, 20 of her cousins are with them. Okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it is a part of protection, yeah. but it's also with the girls, it's about, you don't let a girl go on her own, who God knows what people would say about her too. There's yeah. that sort of traditional yeah. thing of it. And man, it's good. And from that regard, I think that's beautiful. Yeah, but even the men, right? So if I'm going to the garage, me, I live in a camp, right? If I go to the just lighting the smoke for the listeners at home <laughs> so they know I'm not pausing here um, so if I go to the garage the first thing I'll do if I'm going over to the garage to get a drink I'll ring my cousin I'll ring my other cousin um, about 20 of us to go to the garage this is just what we do we but, tra- but, but now you're but, talking about the garage here yeah, yeah not got, the pub oh yeah or the shop or going shopping or getting clothes <laughs> but, together but with all due respect why do you need 20 people to accompany you to because we travel in gangs <laughs> no listen and the, actually the gang is the wrong word man because again this this totally goes back and I talked to an anthropo- another anthropologist who studied Gaelic Ireland and he was able to put it to me a fellow from Limerick he's like the, the, the foremost expert in Gaelic customs mm-hmm. and he was able to put it to me that that completely stems from Gaelic Ireland travelling in loads people always travel in loads always and nowadays then they get called gangs because mm-hmm. that's what modern yeah. society looks at yeah. them like and we are literally there's no explanation other than from birth that's the way we travel like if I'm going to the shop when I'm a kid 20 of us go to the shop and you go around if my mother asked me to go to the shop I go and ask and that's just the way we do it and then we travel together where we're, we stick to a group we're group people I, I, I'm delighted to you and people get afraid of that you know what I mean I suppose that that's I'm just thinking here my natural reaction to that I can probably see why people would get intimidated. Oh, yeah, totally. But and I suppose they equally have to respect why you do it. Yes, yeah. that's how we do it because that's our culture. We go in groups everywhere we go, yeah. everywhere. Like if, we go to, if we're going down to the country to buy a trailer, yeah. four van loads of us, it goes down. <laughs> that's what we do. And then if it's dealing off another traveller, we're all trying to deal for him. And if the two of them are dealing, ah, give it to him for that. And then his family's saying, give it to him for that. This is what we do. This yeah. is just our way of life. And it's yeah. very hard to understand for a yeah. lot of people. And especially because traveller men like our 
are, are traditionally very macho men. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are boxers and fighters, and we're not afraid of fight. Where it's bred into us to fight. We're like we fight like dogs if we need to. Yeah. You know what I mean? And we most of us try to be, try to avoid fight, but we will go into conflict if we need to. So there's that as well. We're not the most PC people. We're not eloquent Shakespearean speakers. Apart so, from you, obviously. Yeah, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm a thespian. <laughs> so you know what I mean? There's all that, and I suppose our look, our you know, to might be perceived as rough to them. You know what I mean? But this is just the way we are the very we are the best at staying true to who we are for yeah. ourselves and then a lot of people just don't want to accept that and they have their own natural fears and the fears are being created by the media which is the biggest problem and then they're only looking to confirm all this bullshit yeah. thanks again you're very good we're feeding you full if, of the, if this was drink now we'd be really talking shit we're, we're feeding, <laughs> feeding you full of coffee yeah. tell me this what is required to create a truly shared Ireland now a very simple question which has got possibly a bigger answer in all honesty like okay so here's 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 a few things we need for the first time and I would I'm actually I never don't consider myself left wing I don't consider myself right wing honestly none of them I used to consider myself left and then I've seen the new brand of leftism now uh, where they're throwing milkshakes in people's faces and uh, they don't allow people to speak uh, they're against freedom of speech uh, which is very radical, be, uh, very uh, conservative actually, um, because conservatism is about con- is about stopping stuff like that that is radical. You know, because liberalism is meant to be more radical and free. Yeah. So I don't know what I am in the political spectrum, but I know we need some sort of left-leaning government down south for the first time ever. We've never had that. Um, that is concerned about the people. We need Ireland down south to be a place where the people are able to access education fully for free, health services, everything. Our institutions need more funded. We need to be taxing the richer. Um, So in some ways I believe in socialist policies economically uh, in order to unite all them together. Now the good thing about if we unite is that, and I wouldn't wouldn't consider myself a Sinn Féin supporter anymore, I always was. I think Sinn Féin have changed a lot for me. And um, I would have been a great admirer of Gerry Adams. Uh, I'm a still, a, I'm a still am a, a great admirer of Jerry Adams. Martin McGuinness was a personal hero of mine as well. And actually, it was funny both of them start tweeting about my character. Love Hate saying it was their favourite, and it was like the biggest fanboy moment for me. And I never, I never care about celebrity, but the two of them were heroes to me. Growing up, my grandmother would have told me about Martin McGuinness and, and Jerry Adams. You know. And can I just go back? You said you're no longer a supporter. Yeah, of Yeah, I'm no longer. No. Okay. Uh, I'll get, I'll get into that if you want. But what, but still at the same time, they might still get me vote. What does open up is if the Nord opens up, we get a United Ireland. There's a big Sinn Fein sort of left-leaning uh, group of people there, a population which would sway the vote. This is why Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil don't want a United Ireland, is because they fear that, and that's why now they're just trying to reach out now up north because they know a United Ireland is inevitable. I think we need some sort of cultural revolution, and what I mean by that is within our political systems because there's no. This is going to turn off any Protestant hearers listening, but we have probably the most corrupt. Um, we're the most corrupt small country in the world, most corrupt Western country, I'd say. Uh, without a doubt, corruption is a part of the culture here in the political system. And people inherit their elected jobs from their fathers, and, and it's all in a small elite group of people. So we need a sort of, we need a cultural revolution within the political are system. You the, the brown envelope society is still rife? Oh, come on, what, are you serious? Completely, they're in, they're in bed with the property developers, so they're trying to move, property developers and the council are trying to move my family off land together. They're in cahoots together, and the police are helping them. So we need a cultural revolution within the political spectrum. Going back to Sinn Féin, right, I, 
I vote the Sinn Féin every single election, uh, everything, uh, anything, everything Sinn Féin, presidential candidates, everything. And what happened uh, for me was, in the abortion referendum, um, I was completely ostracised, I went pro-life, and I was called an alt-right figure, a Nazi, a woman hater, a racist over being pro-life. Uh, even though I'm uh, anti-racist and pro-equality. And unfortunately, we live in a society now where different opinions or opinion that might go against the majority are not, are not in any way understood and, and all they do is try to label you and there's no conversation to be had. And, and I just spoke from the heart. I would have considered myself pro-choice for a long time until I did all my research. Now, what happened, what turned me off was Mary McDonald deciding to use the party whip against Pater Tobin and another elected TD of Sinn Féin, which was very Gestapo for me, uh, very just mad, uh, almost dictatorship tactic, I thought, considering that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, and we always, confuse, we always, can, um, we always accuse them of that, they decided to give their parties a vote of conscience. Every elected individual had their vo- right to vote of conscience, and she suspended both of those members. And that really turned me off, particularly being someone who's pro-life. And I just agree- I disagreed with the campaign and how it was ran. When you're calling for, when you're saying we're looking for compassion for women, and using the word compassion, I think the word and, di- and you might disagree, and anybody might disagree, and that's fine, and it's okay to disagree. But what about compassion for the unborn? That's the way I looked at it. Um, the most vulnerable life ever, and I actually think abortion is the biggest human rights violation in the history of mankind. I actually genuinely believe that. Um, if you look at Margaret Sanger, who's the who's Planned Parenthood founder in America, the biggest abortion agency in the world, she promoted abortion all around the world. She was a eugenicist, an admirer of Hitler, and she brought abortion into the black communities and promoted it and got leaders in the black communities to promote abortion and convinced them it was for their own interests because their, fa- their family size would go down and they'd have more money economically to get on. And since 1979, 17 million black children have been aborted. It's called the black baby genocide. And in America today, you as much chance of being, of being aborted as being born 50-50 in America today and I learned that when I was over there interviewing black activists over there uh, one man Toussaint Warner was his name from Chicago and he told me this he was like a Malcolm X type figure over there now and um, so everything's I, I went from pro-choice to pro-life and I got a lot of stick from people within the party people outside of it and like uh, ruined my career essentially I lost two of my biggest acting gigs ever I lost 15 speaking roles freedom of speech is gone and uh, I just didn't like the way Mary Lou McDonald conducted that. Up until then, I liked Mary Lou. I, I thought she was great in as an up uh, in opposition to government. Um, she always spoke out about the right things. But I, I suppose when Jerry stepped down as leader, I, I, I was automatically a little bit back because I knew what was happening for in order for him to step down. I think it was about people were talking about it needs to be a new party going a new direction and to me what that meant was go more mainstream and go more with the wind and I think that Jerry being the great man that he is I think was not willing to go with the wind a bit and thought it, even for his own dignity maybe was the best thing for him to do was step down because Jerry Adams to me will always be a hero and a great man and he's helped me actually greatly and every time I've reached out to Jerry Adams Jerry Adams has helped me every single time uh, and get me a lot of time so they might still get me vote but I, I won't be canvassing them which I always did I always online I'd, I'd be battling it out with people I'd be posting constantly I'd be trying I'd be, I rounded up all my family every election and got them over to Darndell to vote Sinn Féin like, like 50, 60 family members every single election so I won't be putting that much energy about it they're still the best of a bad bunch probably for me um, because I suppose one no other party down south have the aim of United Ireland which is the number one aim for me politically that I need to see so for that reason they're going to get me vote you know and may I ask John would you ever consider a life in politics no, yourself? no simple no very simple, no, because, um, well, okay, it's actually complicated when you think about it. No, in one sense, that no, in one sense, that um, 
it's way more fun being an actor. Mm-hmm. And if I, I can imagine. Yeah, if I start, exactly. <laughs> so if I start being a politician, they try to censor you and make you dilute your message, you know? And I can be just free and say what I want, you know? And in, and in a way, it's being more influential. Although, in the next presidency, in the next presidential election, if Peter Casey runs again, I'm going to run against him. Okay. Yeah. There's an exclusive. Yeah, I'm going to run against him. So, um, Why? Why? Because someone has to fight him. And um, he came in with his dirty tactics the last time, and no other candidate um, did a sufficient job for me battling him back. Uh, and I said it actually, I said the biggest mistake Peter Casey did, I said the day before the election results, the biggest mistake he did was he started 10 days out against Travellers. If he started at six weeks out, he would, he would win tomorrow. I said the day before in the Independent, and it came out the next day. I said, but he's going to finish second place. And it was like, second place? But he was pulling around 1%. I said, he's going to finish second place. And he came in at 23%. Uh, because hate roils people up. And he used the Donald Trump tactic, you know? Uh, it's very simple to see. And he's continuing on with that, although he didn't get elected in the EU thing. But he might come back for the, for the presidential election next time. And if he does, I'm going to run against him, for sure, as an independent, as an independent candidate. Very good. Tell me this, John. If you could rule the country for one month, what three changes in law would you make? Well, I'd make travel ethnicity legally binding. Okay. Um, in actually bring into law, I'd make uh, housing a human right. Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to be just totally honest, I could pick a more friendly subject that we'd all agree on. Uh, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd put uh, the Eighth Amendment back into place and save children's lives. Uh, they projected a certain amount of children were going to be aborted uh, when, it, when, they, when it passed. I think we've surpassed that number by five times. Five times more people, are, are children are aborted than what was projected. Uh, and what happened then was they actually refused bills to stop children getting pain relief and late-term abortions. And these refused bills of aborting a child on gender. Um, this is unbelievable. And, none, and this was hardly reported on because the liberal media were afraid because they all backed it. And if the general public really knew what ended up happening and what ended up being put I- into a bill, they'd be horrified. They'd be absolutely horrified. So I'd be honest, that's what I would do. I know that one's going to get me major kickback online and on Twitter, but luckily I have my notifications turned off so I don't get the trolls anymore. <laughs> Mir, another thing I wanted to get you, just yeah. little, a few little anecdotal stories, brother. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think you'll get a bit of a kick out of as well. Of course, absolutely. Um, my, my, my great, this, the first part's not very funny, but my great-grandfather, John Dunne, who was a, he was a great man, he was a, he was an, he was a tinker, which is what we really are, we're tinkers, not travellers. And uh, we're actually mink here, that's our language, but we're tinkers traditionally. And he was a tinker man, and he could, uh, he was a very educated man for traveller. he could read and write, and he could read and write in English and in Irish, and he spoke his own language fluently. And uh, he was a Republican, and in 1955 he came out of a Republican meeting and jumped on his bike, and he was pulled in by the RUC. And the next morning he was found dead, kicked to death in his prison cell. And the B specials immediately went out to the campsite where my grandmother, uh, my great grandmother lived, his wife, and then my grandmother, her daughter, lived. And they, they bet the shit out of them and, and got them to move out of town so they couldn't press charges, you know. Where was this, John? This was. This was. Uh, See, they were sort of in a Protestant area as well, they were, the camp was near enough, because a lot of the time back then, Protestants wouldn't care about travellers because they go, they're gypsies, they're just gypsies, you know, okay. they think they're, non, they're non-political. Meanwhile, travellers are smuggling IRA over the border and wagons and stuff and, and explosives. So, like, I mean, that's just a fact, my grandparents did that, like. So, so basically, 
what happened then was my grandmother raised her ki- children to be very staunch Republican, you know, and a lot of a lot of her children got involved in different various stuff, right? And when Bobby Sands died, my old great grandmother Nan McCann, she burned her trailer and everything in it in the site and walked around the site for a week in a shawl for Bobby Sands in 1981. Nan McCann, right? And in about the year 1999, she was dying. And she was anointed by a priest. Now, the, people in hospitals who work in hospitals, nurses and doctors, hate travellers. And I wouldn't blame them. Because what happens is, when someone is sick, when someone is sick, the absolutely every person who's ever met them, every traveller ever met them visits, like you're talking hundreds to send in a hospital, like, it's out of respect. It's a thing of respect. We respect our elderly and we respect our dead and we respect children. That's our, our thing. That's our three things. Children, look after the children, respect the elderly, respect the dead. That's the big thing. And anybody's sick at all. So, everybody descended, you're talking children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren, right? She was 86 at the time, very old for a traveller. And uh, she got anointed and she was on her way out. And my uncle, who'd be her grandson, I was at the very front because the great-grandchildren put at the front. He said, doctor, he said, can I go and get her a few Guinness? She hasn't drank in a few years. And he said, look, he said, Michael, he said, if she's still alive by the time you come back from the off-license, go ahead. It's not going to harm her. And he says, okay. So I went and got six cans of Guinness and 20 John Player Blue. Right? Okay. Because she hadn't smoked in a few years either. Yeah. And she went downhill when she started smoking and drinking. Mm-hmm. Right? Because it might have been something for, of her life just taken away, you Absolutely. know, psychologically. So he came back with the Guinness and he opened up a can and everybody was watching. And I was there at the front. And he says, Granny, he says, Granny, Granny. And she was in and out of consciousness, you know. Do you want a sup of Guinness? And she kind of blinked her eyes. And he tried to give her some Guinness and she give it back a bit and then she more she kind of hinted and more and eventually she drank the can of Guinness and he said Granny do you want another old can of Guinness and he opened up the can and I swear to God this is the greatest Guinness advert advertisement of all time next time you'll be telling me it's hard to sing yeah no but I'm telling you listen to me what happened listen to me second can she drinks the second can and people are looking around going wow two cans for a woman dying not bad Granny do you want another can of Guinness <coughs> Yes, son. Oh, all right, she's talking now. Another can. Drank it. You ain't me up right? here, by the way. Listen to me, I'm telling you, this is a fact. I was there, witnessed it, and this is a famous story within our community, honestly, right? Right. right. Granny, do you want a fourth can? <laughs> I do, son, I'd love it. You'd love it. And everybody's looking around, Jesus, we're saying God, you and God, you and man's God. And, that, and that's a word that goes back to Gaelic Ireland. In pagan times, they called God, God, you, you know? It's a God, you. She's taking another one. She's taking the lush drink. And she drank the fourth can. And we turned around and our children are going, what the fuck is going on here? Like, the doctor's going, what the fuck? I said, Granny, do you want a fifth can? I do, will you lift me up, son? <laughs> and they lifted her up. And she drank the fifth can. And then she said, <clears throat> before the sixth can, <clears throat> can someone <clears throat> get me an old rebel tape? So everybody ran out to the car park and got every, about 50 Wolf Tone CDs came back because Travers loved the ballads and Rebels, not just traditional, the Rebels they loved. And they came back and they put it on and they took a CD out of one of the rooms that a nurse had, the CD player, and they put it in and uh, I think Going Home by the Soldier or something like that it was. And she starts singing along to it and she said, give me the six can and she lived for six more years. Oh, stop I talking. swear to God, as true as I'm here now, on my father's grave, and the, that and, is a fact. And one of the things that I remember is that the doctor said before 
you went to off license, if she's still alive by the time yeah. you get back, yeah. it'll do her no harm. Yeah, do no harm. She lived for six years. Six after. more years, and, and she's smoking in the room, smoking the damn bell. Did she have a fag too? Yeah, she had a fag. Yeah, she smoked about twenty fags. One that's after remar- another. Yeah. remarkable. Yeah, 100%. And her hand was that steady because Travers do this. My grandmother did it, and, her, and then her, she's my great grandmother. They smoke a fire to the end and don't dip it and keep the ash. And they say that's a sign of a witch. And she was able to do that by the six candle. Her hand was that steady. <laughs> and she's meant to be dead. She lived for six more fucking years, man. We brought her back to the camp two weeks later. <laughs> that is crazy. That's stuff. a fact. Uh, yeah. But a beautiful story. But it, I, I was telling this to a psychotherapist friend of mine who's also a cognitive scientist, and he says, Yeah, I've heard of stories like that where someone get a sense of renewed life psychologically because your br- we underestimate how powerful our brain is and what a brain can do and what a brain can tell our body to do unconsciously. You know what I mean? So that's what I think that's what that, what happened here. Something psychological happened that reacted on her, and she felt alive again and was remembered with the times where she was able to have these little voices in her life that was taken away from her, yes. and she was made to feel old then. Yes, and she right. kind of felt young again. Yes. You know I mean, like Very so. Good. Tell me, is, is religion important to the travelers? Yeah, so to like, look, the, nearly every traveler I visit about Catholic bar, maybe a few who became born again Christians. It was kind of a new thing now because I mean that suits the traveler guilt of sin and all that. You know, you can get rid of your sins. You know, so that so that's becoming a bit of a thing. So yeah, like religion is an obsession. Like if you go into, you know, my mothers, my grandmothers, anybody in my camp, there's. God knows so many statues and yeah. you know Padre that, Pio. That and seems to be the, the perception. Anytime you would look on the TV, yeah, and you would see. We've like four or five grottos of Our yeah, Lady, yeah, Our yeah. Lady particularly. Yeah. Uh, so that's huge. I wouldn't consider myself a staunch Catholic at all, to be honest with you. I'm not really any religion. I believe in God, though. I believe in a Creator. I'm more of a deist, yeah. which is someone okay. who believes the world was created by a higher power. Okay. But it's not an all watching, all judging. Yeah. Um, but I totally respect my family and, mm-hmm. and people's right to. Uh, to have religion and, and any sort of religion they want to practice as long as they're harming nobody, you know? Very good. John, listen, um, I really appreciate the time that you give us today. There's one final question that yep. we always ask everybody. Yeah. And it is, if you could invite three people to your fictional dinner party, and I know you would have plenty of dinner parties in yeah, 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 yeah. they can be, either be alive or they can be dead. Who would they be? And more importantly, why would you invite these three people? Muhammad Ali. Um, okay. Because he was an icon, he was a prophet. He uh, he had more like he refused to go to war when he would have just been a poster boy who went around doing sparring sessions like Joe Lewis did mm-hmm. because it went against everything he believed in. And he knew it would have promoted the war more uh, and he needed him and, and it would have sent more black soldiers out to the front, which they were always sent to the front anyway. And he and he he basically sacrificed the three best years of a boxer's prime, you know, 28, 29, 30 as a heavyweight. And uh, he went absolutely broke, and he st- he was willing to go to jail, and he spoke for his people, and uh, his message was never diluted, and he had principles and morals that is very rare today. And actually, there's this sort of revisionism on Muhammad Ali when he died. They tried to look back, and they make him out to be all fluffy, the American media and all that, and they tried to de-radicalize how radical he was because he was really radical, uh, and a, a huge inspiration to me. The second would be James Connolly, and I actually had this conversation yesterday because I'm in the New Temple Bar Theatre, which is a communist theatre, and we were talking about Connolly, and uh, I, I had the argument recently with somebody in Australia when I was drunk, the usual drunken arguments, political arguments, that Ireland would have been a very different Ireland if Connolly would have survived, um, because he believed in the redistribution of wealth. Uh, which never happened in Ireland. Uh, all, the, all the land should have been taken back off the big Anglo heads, 
all the you know the lords, the, all these people should have been ta- everything should have been taken right back on off them and, and given back to the Irish public, to the Irish state. I think that would have been a huge thing that could have just transformed Ireland. But then it begs the question: if Connolly hadn't have died, would we have had the revolutions at the time we had them? Because his death was particularly gruesome to the Irish public, and it was kind of a turning point. So that begs the question. But I would have Connolly just, and he's a working class fella from Edinburgh. Uh, and, and born outside of Ireland I have that in common with him you know mm-hmm. and then uh, the third would be Brian Brew okay. I'd be tempted to say Nile of the Nine Hostages uh, but I'd say Brian Brew uh, because he was you know the last High King of Ireland he was the last man to unite Ireland together he was uh, an absolute hero who died in the battlefield at age 86 in Clontarf a few miles away from me and actually died after he won the battle he got beheaded uh, and he's a thing of mystery and you know I'd be also tempted to say someone like Dan Donnelly who was a bare knuckle fighting world champion who only started fighting because there was a, an Englishman who said he'd beat any Irishman and he beat him in front of 20,000 people in the Curra in, uh, in 1810 uh, so I'd be tempted to say him too there's a lot of I could name them all day long but Connolly Brian Brew and Muhammad Ali so and, and a load of Guinness so, and a load of Guinness a load of Guinness yeah food for Ali because he didn't drink <laughs> so that's who you would invite uh, to your fictional dinner party. Exactly. John Connors, I'd like to personally thank you on behalf of Shared Ireland and our listeners, and we wish you nothing, only success moving forward. You're an absolute gentleman. Thanks very much, Genuine Carl. pleasure to speak to you today. Thank you, Carl. And would you like to maybe just plug the Lyric Theatre in Belfast once again? What dates, John? Yeah, so it's the 23rd to the 26th of October. Uh, we might be going to 27 yet, depending on t- how tickets go. In the Lyric, uh, in the, the smaller theatre of it, I think it's 150 people or whatever, so it'd be nice. And it's perfect for this type of play. It's a one-man show. Shanty oh, style of one-man show? One-man show. Shanty oh, style of story, storytelling, yeah. Okay. So something something interesting. Is that because you you don't want to pay out any wages? To exactly, it's a precisely it. And also, I don't want anybody else to fuck it up. I'll have me to blame if it doesn't work out. <laughs> and on that note, John Connors, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you.